because they have tried to come to God on the basis of works. And when we come to chapter 11, and Paul introduces the question in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has God rejected Israel? Is God through with Israel? Now this is a crucial question, because it really hits at the very nature of God. God said in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son. In Isaiah 43.20, he said, they are my chosen people. Psalm 135.4 says, God has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Has God rejected his people? Has God rejected the people that he called his own Is God a God who will make promises and then forget about them? Is God a God who will say one day you're mine and the next day you're not? You know, in Samuel's day, God was king over Israel. And the people said, we really don't like this system. We reject God. We want to have a king over us like all the other nations have. In essence, they were slapping God in the face. They were saying, God, we reject you. Did God reject them? Samuel says in 1 Samuel 12, 20, Do not fear you who have committed all this evil, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 9, recalls the history of Israel. He says they were faithful to God, then they would rebel and go their own way. God would discipline them, they would cry out to God, he would deliver them, then they'd be faithful for a while, then they'd rebel and go their own way, God would discipline them, they would cry out to God, he would deliver them, they would be faithful for a while, then they would rebel, and he uses that chapter 9 to show that was the cycle of their whole history. And then he says in verse 31, Nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them, for thou art a gracious and compassionate God. Jeremiah 31, 37, God said, Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be searched out, then will I reject the descendants of Israel. You've got a better chance of counting the stars than of God rejecting his people, Israel. Of Israel, God says in Psalm 89, If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. So you see the question... Paul is asking in Romans 11.1 is a crucial one. In this day when God is working with the church and reaching out to the Gentiles, what about God's other children? Has God rejected Israel? And you see, the underlying question here is, is God faithful or is God 
fickle. Can I really depend on God when he says in chapter 8 that nothing can separate me from his love? Can I really depend on God when he says in chapter 8 that I am his child? You see, that's what's at the core of this question. God has not rejected his people, has he? God has not rejected Israel, has he? And Paul responds with his familiar, may it never be. The strongest negative in the Greek language. No way. Don't even think it. And if that isn't clear enough, notice what he says in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected Israel, the people that he foreknew. Now back in chapter 8, we saw that that word foreknew or foreknowledge means more than just knowing ahead of time. You see, God didn't look ahead and see that Israel would choose him. Israel had no choice. God established Israel. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. You see, foreknowledge is something that happens on God's side of the equation. It's something God did before the foundation of the world. He made a sovereign choice. But you know, there's more to that word foreknowledge than just a, an academic choice. Because the idea of to know in the scriptures carries the idea of intimate, loving relationship. That's why the Bible says Adam knew Eve and they bore a child. It's an expression of intimate love. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 27, my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Jesus said, I know my sheep. You say, well, he knows everybody, doesn't he? Yes, but his sheep he knows in the way that he has placed his intimate love upon them. And here we read that Israel he foreknew. He singled them out ahead of time to place his special love on them. And so Paul is saying it's absurd to suggest that he would reject them. He loves them. And his love for Israel is an endless love. Let me show you a passage. I want you to turn your Bible back to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. Now, we're all familiar with Isaiah 53. That's where the Scriptures portray to us the death of resur and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where it's prophesied in Isaiah 53. It's also the chapter where we're told that Israel would not believe in him because the first verse of Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our message? It, it's also the passage that prophesies for us that Israel wouldn't even understand why Jesus was suffering. Because if you look at verse 4 of, of chapter 53, he says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We looked at him and said God must be judging him when in reality he was carrying our sins upon himself. But you know what's interesting to me? Even though Isaiah 53 prophesies the death on the cross of Jesus Christ and it tells us that Israel would not believe and would not even understand, notice what happens when we get to Isaiah 54. And we'll pick up in verse 7. He says, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, 
but with everlasting loving kindness. Mark that. With endless love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness, my endless love will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Has God rejected his people? No way. He loves them with an everlasting love. He loves them with an endless love. Now come back to Romans chapter 11. Having answered the question, Paul uses the remainder of chapter 11 to develop and defend his answer. And essentially we can divide this chapter into two parts. Verses 1 to 10 tell us that Israel's rejection is only partial. And then verses 11 to 36 tell us that Israel's rejection is only temporary. Now in verses 1 to 10 that we want to look at this morning, Paul emphasizes that Israel's rejection is only partial. It's not a total rejection. And he shows us that by giving us three illustrations that I want you to note this morning. Illustration number one is Paul himself. Notice verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, has God rejected his people? No way, just look at me. I'm exhibit A. I too am an Israelite. I'm an Israelite and God hasn't rejected me. I rejected God to the point of actually persecuting his church, but God hasn't rejected me. And then he adds to that, not only am I an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham. And I think Paul adds that because he thought, well, maybe they think because I was born in a Gentile city that I'm not a true Israelite, I'm a proselyte. I'm a Gentile who proselyted to to Judaism. So he says, I'm not just an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm an Israelite by birth. I go all the way back to Abraham, I'm purebred. And then to be even more specific, he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was a rather prominent tribe. It was actually the smallest of all the tribes of Israel. But if you go back to the history of Israel, you'll find that when the civil war broke out after the death of Solomon, Benjamin was the only tribe that stuck with Judah. And so they stayed true to Jerusalem and to the temple while the other tribes, in a sense, apostatized and they set up a separate priesthood and they set up their separate temples. And so to be of the tribe of Benjamin carried some bragging rights among the Jews. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3, 5, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, Paul was even named after probably the most prominent person from the tribe of Benjamin, who was the first king in Israel, King Saul. So Paul says, here's my pedigree. And why does he lay out his pedigree? For one reason. He's saying, I'm an Israelite. I am Jewish to the bone. I am exhibit A. And God hasn't rejected me. And then secondly, he gives another illustration, and that is the remnant in verses 2 to 6. And here Paul gives us a little history lesson. Notice verse 2. 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Now Paul takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah was the prophet in Israel during the reign of Ahab. Now the Bible says about Ahab that he was more wicked than any king before him. And then to compound his wickedness, he married Jezebel, a foreign king's daughter. And together they erected altars to Baal throughout Israel. They put to death all the prophets of God. And so it was a bleak day in Israel's history. It was a period of rampant unbelief. The prominent religion in Israel was Baal worship. And because of that, God sent a drought on Israel for three and a half years. And you remember at the end of that three and a half year period, Elijah took on the prophets of Baal. They had kind of a God contest on Mount Carmel. They each built their altar, they put wood on the altar, they put an ox on top of the altar, and then they set out the ground rules. They said, who's ever God sends fire out of heaven, he is the true God. And so the 450 prophets of Baal began to cry out to Baal to bring fire out of heaven. And it says they prayed to him from morning until evening with no response. And about that time, Elijah started to mock them a little bit and say, well, maybe you need to talk louder. Maybe Baal went on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. And finally, about evening, Elijah took over the stage, and he had 12 pitchers of water poured over his altar. And then he cried out to God. And God sent fire out of heaven and consumed the ox and the wood and the stones and the water and even the dust around the altar. A tremendous display of God's power and presence. And then Elijah slew the 450 prophets of Baal. And then he prayed again and rain came out of heaven. I mean, this guy was on a roll. He comes down off Mount Carmel. Jezebel hears about what happened. And she sent a messenger to Elijah and said, Tomorrow at this time, young man, you're going to be dead. And what did Elijah do? He ran. He took on 450 prophets of Baal and he ran from one woman. Now I'll let you make the application. He fled a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a juniper tree and he prayed, Lord, take my life. And God responded by sending him an angel who gave him food, gave him something to drink, gave him a nap, and then said, get up, I want you to go to Mount Horeb. I want you to go to literally Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And when he got there, we're told that a great strong wind came upon the mountain and began to break up the rocks. And Elijah thought, this is God coming, but God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake that shook the whole mountain, and Elijah thought, this is God showing up, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then a fire broke out on the mountain, and Elijah thought, this must be God, but God was not in the fire. Now, why, why did God do that? Why did God have these great 
expressions take place on the mountain, but God was not in them. I think he was saying to Elijah, you don't always know how I work. And then after all those displays of power, we're told there was a gentle blowing breeze. And God spoke to Elijah in that gentle breeze. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, what's the problem, Elijah? What's got you so upset? And that's where Paul picks up the story in Romans 11:3, with the words of Elijah. Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Now, what's Elijah saying? He's saying, God, Israel is in total unbelief and they have rejected you and I'm the only one left and they're about to kill me, and after they kill me, that's going to be it. You see, when God says, what's the problem? Elijah says, the problem is that your promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are about to go belly up. Look at verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and Jezebel's about to kill me, and that's going to be the end of Israel. And God says, count again. I've got 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See, God is saying, I have my believing remnant. And what's interesting to me is that Elijah, the prominent prophet in Israel, didn't even know about this believing remnant. So what's the application? Verse 5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. What's the application? God is doing the same thing today. God has always had his believing remnant of Jewish people, and he still has that believing remnant today. You say, well, where are they? Where is this Jewish remnant today? Well, it's within the church. It's made up of Jewish people who recognize Jesus as their Messiah. You say, well, how'd they get there? How come they never dwindled down to nothing over the years? How come Elijah's fear was never realized? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 5. He says it's according to God's gracious choice. And again, Paul introduces the sovereign grace of God. And then notice what he adds in verse 6. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, why does Paul put this verse in here? You know, really, his argument would be okay if he didn't put this verse in here, but he has to elaborate on grace. And I was wondering to myself, why did he do that? And I thought of two reasons. Number one is because Paul loved grace. You know, he says at the end of verse 5, it's according to God's gracious choice, and he just can't pass up this opportunity to expound again on the subject of grace. 
There are eight occasions when the word grace is used in the Old Testament. There are 128 occurrences in the New Testament. I count 81 of those times in the New Testament that it's Paul who's talking about grace. You see, Paul was a trophy of grace, and he loved to talk about it. And so here he introduces the subject, and he can't help but elaborate on it for us in verse 6. And so the first reason I thought of is that he loves grace. The second reason I thought of is that he knows how difficult it is for most people to really understand and really accept this idea of grace and how prone we are to want to add something to grace. And so what does he tell us here? You see, when we, when we hear this story about Elijah, and we hear that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, you know what our first reaction is? Good for them. Wasn't that tough for them to, to not bow to Baal in that day? We ought to give those people credit. We ought to applaud those people for standing up for God. But what does Paul say? Notice what he said in verse 4. God speaking, I have kept for myself 7,000. Who did it? God did it. Look at the end of verse 5. He says it was according to God's gracious choice. And then he goes on to make one point in verse 6. And that one point is that grace and works are incompatible opposites. You see, the whole character of grace is such that if you try to add works, you no longer have grace. You see, grace has no additives. In order to be grace, it has to be 100% works-free. It has to be 100% pure grace. You see, the person who wants to say you're saved by grace plus works doesn't understand grace because Paul tells us that grace and works are mutually exclusive. They're like oil and water. They don't mix. Understand this this morning. Any standing, any acceptance, any forgiveness, any blessing that anyone enjoys before God is all by grace. And that's true as well in the case of Israel. Has God rejected His people? No way. He has always had and still has His remnant of believing Israelites. And then He gives us a third illustration, and that is the rest in verses 7 to 10. In verse 7 He says, What then? Or what follows? What can we say at this point? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. Now, what was Israel seeking for? Well, he told us back in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, that Israel was seeking for righteousness. Israel was seeking to have a right standing before God, but they didn't obtain it. Why not? Because they tried to gain it by works. And then he adds, but those who were chosen obtained it. Who's that? That's the remnant he spoke about in verse 5. He says, those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. That word hardened means calloused, or thick-skinned, or insensitive to the voice of God. Did you ever wonder why 
Jewish people in general are so resistant to the gospel? Paul tells us here it's because they have been hardened. And then he gives us a quote to support that in verse 8. He says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. He says they have a spirit of stupor. Some of you have that right now. That's when you kind of feel like you can just fall over and go to sleep. You're you're half awake. He says spiritually they have a spirit of stupor. They have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. God has hardened them. You know, that was one of the purposes of the parables. Let me, let me show you a passage. Look at Matthew chapter 13 with me. Matthew 13. You may have come across these verses before and wondered what they meant. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10 says, And the disciples came to Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And then he lays out a principle in verse 12. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand... And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and he quotes from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again and I should heal them. You see, Jesus says there were two purposes behind the parables. One purpose was that the parables gave a mental picture, an illustration, a a word picture to people so they could understand spiritual truth better. One reason was as a mental picture. The other reason was as a mental block. You see, when Jesus told the parables, for instance, he told the parable of the sower. He said a farmer goes out with his seed and he throws his seed out. Some falls on the path, some falls on the rocky soil, some falls in the weeds, some falls on the good soil. He tells the story. If you read the account of the sower, the disciples come up to Jesus afterwards and say what? What did that mean? You see, they heard the illustration. They wanted to go deeper. They wanted to understand the spiritual truth behind the story. And so they came to Jesus and they asked, what does that mean? What's the sower? What's the seed? What's the ground? They wanted to know more. Others in the crowd listened to the story of the sower and they said, nice story. When are you going to turn some fish and bread into food again? Because we're hungry. Great story. That's all we want to know is the story. See, Jesus said, I told the parables so it would allow some to go deeper and understand and it would become a mental block for others and allow them to see but not really see and hear but not really hear. You see, he gave the same message and that same message softened some and hardened 
others. It's like the old saying, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, the Bible is not saying that God arbitrarily and maliciously makes people into unbelievers. They were already unbelievers. The message just hardened them even further. In fact, look at another passage. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 37. John 12 and verse 37. It says, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And then he quotes in the next verse from Isaiah 53, 1, where it says, who has received our report? To say that God had prophesied this. And so it says in verse 37, they were not believing in him. And notice verse 39, for this cause they could not believe. For what cause? Because they were not believing, Jesus says, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. You see, Jesus is laying down a principle of unbelief. And that is when you don't believe, and you refuse to believe, and you continue to refuse to believe, you eventually cannot believe. And Paul is saying that is the case with the rest of Israel. They were hardened. And then come back to Romans chapter 11. Having quoted from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 in verse 8, he now supports his point with a quote from Psalm 69 in verse 9. He says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Their table... Now, the table was a place of fellowship. The table was a place of communion. In Psalm 23, 5, it says, God has prepared a table before me. It was a place where I would have communion with God. And he says here, their table had become a snare and a trap. The place that was designed for Israel to enjoy fellowship with God had become a trap for them. What was intended for a blessing had become a curse. When Douglas MacArthur and our troops entered Japan, they took control of the archives of the Japanese War Department. And when they translated those archives, they discovered some rather enlightening information. They discovered that in the years prior to the war, the Japanese had sent their most, most eminent professors of psychology to the United States to study our national character and to determine at what point in time we would be most vulnerable to attack. And those professors determined that the best time would be early on a Sunday morning. Now you might think that was because our soldiers would be in church on Sunday morning. That's not what they determined. They determined that our soldiers would be in bed on Sunday morning and not only would they be in bed, but they would be in bed with a hangover. And so they determined to bomb Pearl Harbor on a Sunday morning following the Friday on which both the Army and Navy received their paychecks. You see, our day of national rest had become 
a day of hangover. That which was designed to be a blessing had become a curse. A symbol of rest had become an occasion for war. And the same was true of Israel. Their table became a trap. All their privileges, the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, those things that were designed to bring them closer to God had actually become a trap. Because rather than bringing them closer to God, it had kept them away. And then he completes the quote in verse 10. He says, Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. There's another vivid picture. They were trying to carry the yoke of the law, and what was it doing? It was bending their back under the weight of trying to work their way to God. And so Paul's point in verses 7 to 10 is that the rest of Israel was hardened. You say, well, how is that an illustration that God hasn't rejected his people? Well, it's an illustration because Paul is quoting from Moses and Isaiah and David. And what he's showing us is at the same time God was giving his unconditional promises to Israel, he was also predicting that many in Israel would not, would not believe. And so what he's saying is this didn't come as a surprise to God that most of Israel rejected him. He had promised that. He had predicted that. He had prophesied that ahead of time. God hasn't rejected his people, has he? God hasn't given up on his endless love, has he? No way. Paul says, look at me. I'm an Israelite and I'm not rejected. Look at the remnant from Elijah's time down to the present. God has his believing remnant. And look at the rest. Israel's unbelief and rejection was something God knew about and expected from the moment he made the promises. And then in closing, I just can't resist reaching into next week's sermon for a little nugget. Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. By Israel's failure and rejection, guess what? The Gentiles get the blessing of the gospel. But notice what it says at the end of that verse. He's doing that to make them jealous, which tells me that even today as God reaches out to the Gentiles, who is still on his mind? The people of Israel. Because you see, God loves with an endless love. I'm going to ask the praise team to come, and we're going to close our service today with a chorus. I don't know how God may have spoken to you today or what he's challenging you with today, but as we sing this chorus in closing, I'm going to invite you, if you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, if you've never confessed him to be your Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I'm going to invite you to come today as we close our service with this chorus. If you come to faith in him today, you too, like Paul, can be a trophy of his grace. You too can, ex can experience his endless love. You can have said of you at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You too can say in the words of this 